Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is August 28th. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet, we have a full complement of hosts uh, today, uh, Doug, Tiffany, Erica, and Gabby. Everybody's here. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about um, the mind-body connection um, what do emotions have to do with physical ailments? Uh, can emotional turmoil manifest as visible symptoms? Do chronic diseases have specific personality types? Um, so we'll be going over some of those issues. And uh, we'll be addressing the idea that uh, in modern medicine, doctors rarely kind of look outside the brain for answers, the brain or the body. And um, I think it's kind of well understood uh, among the general population, if you were to go out on the street and ask, you know, a few people here and there, you know, are your emotions connected to your physical health? Most people would say, yeah, there's kind of this intuitive understanding of that. Um, but, you know, ironically, as with many other things, uh, this has not been codified in medical practice, um, you know, by and large. So we're going to talk about that today and go over some of those details. Um, but let's start with uh, some connecting the dots, some news from the week. Um, Gabby, do you want to start us off here with this article about antibiotics? Yes, and it is interesting because it is actually an article that explains how your physical body can affect your emotions, like the other way around from our show, but still, <laughs> very huh. relevant. So it is an article written by Richard Horowitz. He's a worldwide leader on Lyme disease. And he published this article on Psychology Today uh, last year, and it is titled Antibiotics Sound Effective in Schizophrenia. So he reveals how there were a couple of studies where doctors used uh, antibiotics called um, tetracyclines, um, basically doxycycline, venocycline, and patients with schizophrenia felt better. They actually, you know, some people even healed and uh, the researchers of the study were speculating that, you know, the antibiotics were decreasing complex pathways in inflammation and so forth, but they, like, failed to, to ask the very simple question, you know, or to, to figure out why do we give antibiotics for? Well, we don't give them for inflammation. We give them for mm. infection. Mm-hmm. So that's, like, the basic concept that was really missed on these uh, papers because schizophrenia has been linked with several infections. For example, toxoplasmosis is one, but also um, Lyme's disease, which is a multisystemic disease, can mimic, you know, uh, it's, um, it is called also like the great imitator. It can mimic several diseases, in, including psychiatric ones. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Horowitz goes on to explain how there is a higher prevalence of the causative agent of Lyme disease, which is called, it is a bug, by the way, it's called Borrelia burgdorferi, and it's transmitted by ticks, and there's a higher prevalence of antibodies in, uh, in blood tests, 
in patients with schizophrenia against this Borrelia. And, but not, all, not only Lyme disease, there are all other co-infections or infections that are very similar or, you know, uh, happens, happens at the same time with Lyme disease, such as cat scratch disease caused by Bartonella, and also um, Babesia, uh, which is also a very strange bug that is appearing during the last five, ten years, uh, moreover, more and more in the clinical practice. And it is a bug that is very similar to toxoplasmosis, genetically speaking, which is interesting because because both toxoplasma, toxoplasmosis, and uh, the agent of uh, these these new bugs, Babesia, cause a lot of psychiatric symptoms, like you know, unexplained depression that doesn't go away with any remedy me uh, method or ther therapy, and. Um, and yes, so they've been having very good results just giving these antibiotics. So he goes on to explain that, you know, don't assume that the antibiotics are, uh, you know, are treating an, uh, an underlying inflammation. They actually might be treating an underlying infection, which mm. uh, fortunately most blood tests nowadays are very bad are very unsensitive, that is, they don't detect these infections, you need to have very highly specialized lab tests, and even then, you know, it is not 100% sensitive and specific. And there are a lot of new emerging bugs, um, you know, there are over 300, you know, species uh, described recently for ticks and the bugs they transmit and it's seen all over the world. It is actually Lyme disease is the, and associated co-infections is like the new emerging epidemic that we're having right now, not mm. only in the U.S., but uh, in other parts of the world, in Europe, and um, certain bugs are specifically, are specific to Central America, Russia, but also China, Africa, okay, the whole world. <laughs> so, <laughs> So this is another thing to have in mind, and uh, not only psychiatric symptoms, but also any chronic disease, neurological problems like multiple sclerosis, and lots of disease. I really do encourage people to get Dr. Richard Horowitz's book, Why Can't, get, Why Can't I Get Better? I'm halfway through. And um, I'm actually trying one of the protocols, and yes, it's blowing my mind. I think we'll talk about it in a future show, but you know, just so you guys know, it's a must-read book. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Very cool. I wonder if there's ever been any studies like studying the gem demographics of Lyme disease and. Like, uh, I know in New England they have a higher occurrence of Lyme disease, so I wonder if they have a higher occurrence of schizophrenia. schizophrenia. Yeah. It is actually in this very same article, you know, an endemic region of Lyme disease has also high prevalence of uh, psychiatric patients or the other way around. And um, there are also some specific bugs, not only Lyme disease, for example, Babesia and Bartonella, that are, that are showing up in specific regions in the U.S., like California, Colorado, that's what mm. I remember, Central America, some parts of South America. 
and different species are emerging in Europe, and yes, there does seem to be a correlation with more neurological problems and psychiatric problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be nice if doctors actually looked at, you know, any of these kind of psychological symptoms and, and thought maybe to check for um, these kinds of uh, infections. Because uh, I know, that, you know, it's usually people are pretty resistant to that idea. And I know with Lyme's, like, you know, the people will really only look into the possibility of Lyme's if there has been a tick bite. But there's been more and more cases coming up where, uh, you know, patients don't remember ever being bitten by a tick, whether they didn't notice or if they maybe got it some other way, um, which I guess is probably a possibility. Um, or it might not be Lyme's, but something related to Lyme's that, uh, that could maybe be uh, passed on in uh, a different way other than a tick bite. So I think that this yeah, is just a, an emerging area. That's a very good point because, like, you know, less than 50% of people remember ever being bitten by a tick. And these are hard-shelled ticks. And the new diseases, the new bugs, are emerging in the soft ticks, which people, people typically don't notice they were ever bitten. Like, mm. you just don't know. <laughs> yeah. So not every case of Lyme disease. Not every case of Lyme disease has that telltale bullseye rash that they get from the tick bit. Exactly. Less than 50% people recall that. And the problem is that even when healthcare practitioners are aware of Lyme disease and neurological problems, psychiatric problems, they have, for, for example, a person with bipolar disorder and they will order um, the basic screening test for Lyme disease, which, um, sorry my French, but it sucks. It's really bad at detecting mm. Lyme disease. So if it comes back negative, they just delete Lyme disease from their diagnose, uh, differential diagnosis uh, protocol. Mm. And that is very wrong, you know. You have to order like at least two, three, four, five more tests. And even as Horowitz suggests himself, in the end, you know, what can be done also is like a trial test of antibiotics, you know, just to see mm. if you get better. Mm -hmm. So if you have hurt reactions, which is die of symptoms when the bugs get killed, so that means you're, you know, you have something going on there, even though the tests are negative, you know. Yeah. And uh, basically every single psychiatric disease described could be, you know, imitated by Lyme disease or co-infections, or they can get worsened by Lyme disease and co-infections. Right. So, it's a problem. We've mentioned before, uh, like, you know, how a lot of these stealth bacteria can do things like kind of morph into cyst form or hide themselves in biofilms. And in, in those kinds of situations, you know, you, you're not going to be able to detect them. There's going to be, uh, they're, they're, for all intents and purposes, completely hidden. So, exactly. yeah, I think, I think that really um, drives home the point that a test isn't always going to pick up whether those infections are actually present. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, his case studies described in the book, I mean, they're, you know, they're very miraculous, but they all have, you know, scientific explanations of why did it work, why did the protocol work, and why did it take so much time? You know, the, the person that, that goes to Dr. Horowitz's uh, clinic they consulted an average 20 doctors before going to him, like on, uh, on a span of even 10 or 20 years, you know. They have every single diagnostic test out there <laughs> in the book done to them. And it was only until Lyme disease was suspected. 
and looked for and treated that they actually start to heal. Mm-hmm. There are cases of multiple sclerosis, which actually they get worse because they're given steroids and cortisone medication. And the mm-hmm. cortisone medication will actually enhance and um, promote the proliferation of, of these bugs in the body because it shuts mm-hmm. your immune system. So, wow. yeah. Something definitely to look into, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's move to our next uh, topic here. Looks like, Tiff, do you want to cover this article? Uh, we've got an app for depression now. All the geeks in this Star Trek is going to come true someday. <laughs> yeah, it's called uh, Depressed. We've got an app for that. Researchers monitor pattern behavioral patterns with smartphone data and biomarkers, and it was written by Nicholas West. <clears throat> so the author, he came up with this study. Um, well, he uh, discovered this study by researchers in Tel Aviv University, and they announced that a smartphone app might revolutionize mental health treatment. So they geared the app towards mental health professionals, um, and the app is supposed to detect changes in patients' behavioral patterns and then transmit them back to the mental health professionals in real time. And they wanted wanted the app to help clinicians in evaluating and treating people with mental health mental illnesses. Um, it would allegedly give patients much needed independence from hospitals, clinicians, and even family members, which I found like really laughable because the app is monitoring your behavior and it's sending the reports back to your doctor. So how much less independent can you be than having somebody monitoring <laughs> what you're doing all the time? <laughs> but um, they gave an example of how the app would be used and they said that a patient who usually makes five or ten calls a day might suddenly start making dozens of calls a day. Um, they look at how much they talk, how much they text, how many places they visit because they follow them with GPS, um, <laughs> when they go to bed and for how long. And these are all supposed to be indicators of mental health, and it provides insights to clinicians uh, who want to catch a disorder before it's full-blown. So allegedly this app is only supposed to be used with psychiatric patients that are under care. But in the study, um, they tested it on 40 participants, which is not a very large number, but these are so-called normal people. And they said that the app detected general depression up to 90% of the time. And uh, there's a link in the article, and I opened that up. And the app is called Purple Robot. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, what does Purple Robot mean? I was thinking of Barney, but that's a purple dinosaur. So I couldn't really come up with what Purple Robot might might mean. But it is available in the Google App Store. So if anybody wants to try and download it and report back, <laughs> I'm all ears. <laughs> but it's really, it doesn't seem to be coming from a place of caring. Is just like all other technology, it's supposed to be for convenience and making your life easier, but really the desire to control and monitor you is the reason why it was made. Mm-hmm. And the author goes on to say that um, in the Obamacare Act, um, they place value on data that's gathered from gadgets and consumer behavior. 
and they say it's all because they want to protect their health and they want to cut health care costs and reduce hospitalizations. But I say, look, whatever happened to just talking to people or engaging in a therapeutic relationship? Like, have you guys yeah. seen that movie, uh, Idiocracy, <laughs> yeah. where the main character goes yeah. to the to the hospital and the doctor is behind the desk and he has these probes and you're supposed to stick them in orifices and it'll give you like a diagnosis. So this is basically <laughs> what that is. This is but, a like the robotic chair, like you don't need a human person. Well, <laughs> oh, there's more to this because there's some researchers at Indiana University and they wanted to combine the purple robot app, um, which has some questions questions on it and they want to combine that with biomarkers from blood samples and they want to be able to predict which patients will think about or attempt suicide. So they tried it on some bipolar patients and they said their accuracy in predicting suicidal ideation was 92%. But it's really sad, like if you're a professional mental health practitioner and you need an app and blood tests to predict that somebody that is bipolar might be suicidal or might end up in the hospital. That's really sad. So this okay. to me is like, yeah, it's really no different than tagging wild animals and then like tracking oh, yeah. their movements and behaviors to study them. So yeah, it's kind of like uh, free roaming humans are being tagged and tracked. But what if the patients yeah. are really crazy by the smartphones? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering. I mean, I don't want to make light of suicidal ideation, but you got to think like if you are a patient of this kind and you realize that your doctor is relying on an app, like that might increase suicidal ideation. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I was picking me out. He was like, Big Brother is watching me. <laughs> More paranoia. Yeah, yeah, they're already paranoid enough as it is, because if you're, like, in a really strong manic episode of bipolar, you can have paranoid delusions and, you know, mm. think that people are out to get you, and you have this cell phone app that's tracking everything that you do. I don't think it'll go over well with patients. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'd, I'd be really uh, curious I wonder, though, to see what their oh, – oh, I was just going to say, I'd be really curious to see what their data points are. You know, like, and what they what they base happiness versus uh, depression on. You know, like, if you're playing a lot of games, well, games are good, right? Games are fun, so you must be happy. But I don't know. <laughs> I'm just curious, like, how how they base their um, their data on what point. Uh, yeah, it's all yeah. I don't think just like a lot of interpretation. <laughs> well, I wonder if somebody could use that app kind of in a more positive way, just for themselves, like rather than beaming all this information to their doctors or, or their healthcare practitioner, they could maybe just, uh, you know, use it as kind of self-monitor. Because I know that sometimes these things can creep up and you don't necessarily know that you're kind of entering into an episode. So if you were maybe mm -hmm. to be able to track this stuff just for yourself and kind of get a warning and be like, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe you know, something's going on here. I, I seem to have been doing a lot more, um, you know, texting or gaming or whatever lately. So maybe that's... Uh, that that's something to to keep in mind. I don't know. It might might be possible to kind of like just as a as a self monitor app. Yeah, only if it's kept private though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't yeah, know. I feel better when I don't. I turn my phone off completely. I feel so much yeah. better. <laughs> I could see it saying your your Netflix quota is full. <laughs> <laughs> 
you're feeling a <laughs> malaise with a side of social off. anxiety. <laughs> what happened with conventional email? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of uh, psychiatric issues, that, that brings us to our next point here. Um, Doug, do you want to cover this this article about erasing the uh, erasing the person? This sounds like um, e-patterning, like what uh, Dr. Colin Ross talked about. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting article um, by John Rappaport um, from the uh, website The Mind Unleashed. It was done on August 20th, uh, and it's called "Psychiatry Erase the Unique Individual." Um, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I'll quote heavily from the article because he actually writes uh, quite well and, and kind of summarizes his points pretty well. So he basically says that since none of the 300 official mental disorders has any defining physical test for diagnosis, there's no proof that they exist, period. You could interview thousands of people who say they feel depressed and you would find significant differences. The more you listen to their stories, the more you would be convinced of the differences. Uh, you would be splitting apart the central idea of depression and realizing it has no common center. Uh, this is hard for many people to believe. That's how brainwashed we are. Um, there is no common universal state of consciousness. It's all unique from person to person. As such, mental disorders, um, as a common mental state shared by everyone labeled with the disorder, is really nothing but a myth. Uh, and he talks a lot about this myth. Um, you know, he says there's basically 300, uh, over 300 diagnosable mental disorders um, with all with associated drugs for treating them, but uh, it's nothing more than what he says, pin the tail on the donkey, which is basically, I don't know how familiar some of our international listeners might be with that game, but it's basically a kid's game where you um, you blindfold yourself and try and uh, pin a, a tail onto um, a picture of a donkey, and, and you kind of see how close you get to actually pinning it in the right spot. So he's, he's basically saying that these these guys don't really have any kind of strong criteria for diagnosing these so-called mental disorders. They're just really shooting in the dark. Um, uh, he quotes Dr. Uh, Ronald uh, Pies, uh, the editor-in-chief emeritus of psych the Psychiatric Times, um, and he says that this doctor laid to rest the theory of chemical imbalance uh, in July 11th of 2011 uh, in the Times when he said, in truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always a kind of urban legend never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Um, researchers had never established a normal baseline for chemical balance, so they were always shooting in the dark. And I think that's an important point. You know, when they, when they bring up this idea of chemical imbalance, since they're not working from any kind of baseline of what a healthy chemical balance is in the brain, there really isn't a way of diagnosing a chemical imbalance. Um, so they, again, were like shooting in the dark. Um, at worst, they were faking a theory, pretending they knew something when they didn't. Um, that's, well, Dr. that's true. Because I've, yeah. uh, I've worked in psychiatric hospitals, and I've heard that term chemical imbalance bandied about. I've used it myself a few times before I knew better. But there, no one ever did a blood test. If someone gets admitted into the psych ward, no one ever says, okay, we're going to draw blood and test your serotonin or your dopamine levels mm -hmm. and see if they fall within normal range. That never happens. I don't think anybody even knows what normal range is for any of these neurotransmitters. So it's all just a bunch of baloney. Yeah, you know, it really is. 
And, and you know, Rappaport goes on to say that while Dr. Pius says that no um, serious psychological professional ever took the chemical imbalance theory seriously, um, he points out that this is actually nonsense because this is the basis on which billions of psychiatric drugs have been prescribed. So, I mean, mm-hmm. although he's saying, oh, nobody ever took that seriously, it, it, it's self-evident that they actually have taken this seriously and they're using it as a way to try and uh, to, to correct this so-called chemical imbalance. Um, he goes on to say that this myth is, some, is something very deeply embedded in our culture, uh, that our culture is all about constructing a deep core of victimhood that reaches down into every individual and defines and limits him the same way that original sin and attendant guilt imposes limits on so-called spiritual level. Uh, these, myth, these myths obscure truly dynamic and creative consciousness which shapes and invents reality. Uh, the pseudoscience of psychiatry is, on a whole, uh, an attempt to block knowledge, uh, knowledge of power of individual creative force. And he says at the very end, you can rearrange deck chairs for as long as you want to until and unless individual creative consciousness is restored there will always be a huge, stark missing gap in any effort to establish social progress. And I think, you know, it maybe sounds like a bit of hyperbole, but I I think he's absolutely right. And he he goes on to say that, you know, psychiatry, in in history, psychiatry is going to be kind of like a minor blip on the radar, and it's going to be looked at the the same way we look at, like, putting leeches on people or, uh, you know, cutting holes in the brain in order to kind of let the evil spirits out. So, yeah, he's I, I think he's totally right. Yeah. Do you guys think that the the DSM that from a this is kind of a layperson's question, but uh, do you think that it should just be essentially tossed out the window, or that it's good as kind of a baseline, maybe like a roadmap for a general, you know, not a specific diagnosis, but a way to generally talk about these things, or that it should just be kind of gotten rid of entirely? I think it's just like the Bible, you know. Yeah. Um, so much disinfo uh, based on conflict of interest because, you know, the psychiatrists themselves were sponsored by this or that pharmaceutical company or that specific research. So discerning, you know, at least some principles might apply, but I don't know, especially the latest edition, it's just like, you know, terrifying the conflict of interest that were uncovered. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, especially when they just keep making up new diagnoses and adding them. Like you can oh, have no. like a core group of mental health uh, disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, PTSD, and use that as a roadmap. But mm-hmm. if you don't treat it in the correct fashion, I mean, what good is the tool? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Might as well have nothing. Yeah, I think- I, I think at its basis, I mean, the idea behind it is probably good. You know, maybe they should take, you know, uh, groups of symptoms and say these seem to be common to a certain group of people, so they're clearly having some kind of disorder. And here's things that we've used to try and uh, and deal with this and, and what's worked, what hasn't worked, that kind of thing. Like that, that makes sense to have that kind of thing. But I think like Gabby was saying, it's just so... You know, it, it, it's it's bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies right now, and they're just using it to to sell more drugs, essentially. So I'd say, as it stands right now, yeah, totally scrap it. It's not really uh, it's not really very useful. All it is is like, you know, a very simplistic way of looking at things. If symptoms A, B, and C exist, then prescribe this drug. Um, but I think you know that the idea that you know we should be gathering this knowledge together and kind of looking at at things, um, you know, connecting some dots, that sort of thing, that, that makes some sense. 
So mm-hmm. yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, the idea, yes. In practice, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, uh, uh, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think, too, if um, psychiatry as a whole, uh, I, I don't personally know any psychiatrists, but just from, you know, what I've heard and read, uh, they don't do this generally, but if they took took in, you know, points uh, of um, disparate points from the person's life, you know, for instance, somebody who is prone um, to anxiety and let's say they work a job that they hate under fluorescent lights eight hours a day and mm. they eat a lot of really crappy food, those are contributing factors and it's going to make it worse, you know, and so the whoever they're seeing for that disorder should say, well, you need to you know, stop eating wheat and, um, you know, try to find a different line of work, you know, or things like that. And that might correct actually quite a bit of what they're feeling. Um, But instead, Mm -hmm. Doug, like you said, I think they just kind of hammer people with prescription drugs, which, of course, uh, I think we're all well aware of just makes it worse over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think to really have a DSM that actually worked properly, you'd have to completely revolutionize the entire field. And, you know, it kind of works in with our topic today that you you need to look at the person as a whole rather than look at a so-called chemical imbalance and say, oh, we need to correct this imbalance. It's like, no, you need to look at the person. You need to look at their entire life. What are they doing? What are they eating? What is their job? What makes them happy? What do they do? You know, what makes them sad? And what what are they um, forced into in their life that they don't want to do? Like all Mm -hmm. these things kind of take, take, uh, you have to take the whole picture into account. And I think the DSM discourages that sort of approach. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if psychiatrists, yeah. if they've been working with the patient for a certain number of for a certain number of years or a specific amount of time, even though they don't spend that much time with them, maybe like ten minutes. After a mm-hmm. while, you get to know this person, you get to know their life, um, mm-hmm. but they are not equipped to deal with it. They'll know all these things that's going on with the person, but they still just pull out the prescription pad which is really mm-hmm. just a shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, moving along, I guess, so, uh, along the lines of uh, mental health and anxiety, um, I've got an article here called Music More Effective Than Drugs in Relieving Pain and Anxiety, which is quite interesting, and uh, I've got personal experience with um, played music for quite a few years, uh, and I think other people who have played music, or even if you don't play and you just listen to music, um, that you've had that moment where it hits kind of a deep emotional center and you feel a release. Um, you might cry, you know, or, you know, feel more relaxed. Um, <clears throat> so in, in this article, it says, uh, 400 published scientific papers have proven the old adage that music is medicine. Neurochemical benefits of music can improve the body's immune system, reduce anxiety levels, and help regulate mood in ways that drugs have difficulty competing. Um, we have found compelling evidence that musical interventions can play a healthcare role in settings ranging from operating rooms, from operating rooms to family clinics, says Professor Leviton of McGill University's psychology department. Uh, but even more importantly, we were able to document the neurochemical mechanisms by which music has an effect in four domains management of mood, stress, immunity, and as an aid to social bonding, um, which I think is kind of just an ad- academic way to say what we're aware of, uh, you know, that you that music can help you feel better. It can help relieve stress. Um, it can help you bond with other people in a social setting. 
and I think the really interesting one is that it can actually help your um, immune system. Um, so it says here later in the article uh, that Levitin's team surveyed over 400 papers looking for patterns in the evidence supporting the claim that music can affect brain chemistry in a positive way. The four areas are reward, motivation, and pleasure. That's one. Uh, as an example, to help with eating disorders. Uh, stress and arousal is two. Uh, immunity uh, to strengthen the body's immune system, slow down age-related decline, and social affiliation. Um, and the four primary neuro- neurochemical systems that are affected are dopamine and opioids, uh, cortisol, uh, serotonin, and oxytocin. Um, so the effect that music has on the brain actually releases these compounds within the body um, and can treat people, you know, for a various number of illnesses. Now, you know, this this may not be, if you're extremely ill, you're not going to, like, pop in a CD and just cure yourself. Um, mm-hmm. But for maintenance, for maintenance of your life, your state of mind, uh, the state of your body, uh, it is important to uh, to regularly listen to music that you uh, that you listen that you like that you enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. There's one other thing here, uh, kind of the point that I made. Uh, this this doctor says you don't need a neuroscientist to tell you that music can be invigorating, intensely pleasurable, or sad. But this is an exciting time for research on the biological foundations of music. Um, they're working on software that can provide similar musical feedback to users, which he says might help relieve pain for people recovering from strokes or drug addiction. So there are some hospitals that already use music to relieve anxiety before surgery and pain afterwards. Uh, but Sven Bringman of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden says that it could be used more. Uh, music is not used as much as it should be because it takes more of a nurse's time than just giving a sedative. Um, so I think here we have another kind of example of the uh, the way the medical establishment approaches things. Um, you know, if it takes time, if it takes a lot of efforts, uh, you know, to treat someone uh, with a kind of more holistic approach, the preferred method for, for them generally is to administer a drug um, mm-hmm. and, you know, have a quick result. Um, yeah. That actually reminds me. That reminds me of a, a case not specifically related to music, but along that point, um, a, uh, a person who I'm aware of who will, of course, remain nameless, uh, had some uh, thyroid issues and went to the doctor. And <clears throat> the doctor said, well, you can either get it removed uh, entirely, um, you know, or we can kill it with, uh, with radiotherapy, or you can do this, this, and this, which is going to take like six years. You know, and, and then you would still have your thyroid. And, of course, um, the option that was chosen and the option that the, that the doctor promoted was the quick option, which, mm-hmm. uh, in, in my mind, six years doesn't really seem like that long of a time uh, in the grand scheme of things, but um, especially for something as vital as your thyroid. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's like quick, 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 in and out, just take it out and here's some drugs, and I hope you feel better, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, I think this uh, this point in the article about how they're not using music to the extent that they should be is kind of a, a similar to that. I wonder, did they say anything about the type of music? Anything oh, about yeah. you know how different musics can can affect you? Not specifically in this uh, in this article. It was more just music in general. I guess they were mm-hmm. um, you know kind of. Uh, 
assuming that it would be music that was uh, in line with what the person uh, wanted to listen to. Um, yeah. <clears throat> they're just talking about music being pleasurable. Um, you have the uh, perception. Oh, there's a machine here. Um, it's called a Jimin machine, J-Y-M-M-I-N, a special type of exercise apparatus that allows music to be paired with weight training. So the sounds hmm. change as the user pushes harder. Um, hmm. And it says it says you have the perception that you're being really extremely musically expressive. So that might kind of tie into the uh, the creative as uh, creative expression aspect of psychology there. But they didn't talk about specific types of music. Mm-hmm. But I think, like you said, Jonathan, it should be whatever the person really enjoys listening to. I mean, I think classical music is all well and good and everything, but if you don't really <laughs> do classical music, then I don't see how you'll get the same uh, pleasurable sensations, like, say, if you're listening to your favorite, you know, pop band or somebody like that. Yeah. I think it should be a balance to though. Maybe some people are driven crazy by classical music, but I think mm-hmm. music should be melodic enough. Like, I don't know, a person enjoys, like, heavy metal, you know, I don't know. Mm. That's going to be good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder about that, though, because, you know, a lot of times when you're talking about soothing music and something to kind of de-stress, classical is kind of the default. People say, oh, yeah, listen to some classical music. Well, personally, I don't know. I'm, I don't I don't dislike classical music, but I find that I'm much more I, – I need a lot more structure in my music. Like, I kind of mm-hmm. need that 4-4 four, four time signature to be able to kind of, like, get into it. There's got to be, like, a bit of a groove there. I find that, that classical kind of – because it's always changing time signatures and stuff like that, I feel very floaty when I listen to it, like not grounded. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think, uh, you know, for me personally, I don't know that classical would really be the thing that I would, I would go towards to try and kind of chill out. I think that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'd much rather That's listen great. to like some, some ambient electronic music or something like that. That's my personal preference. But, uh, but then yeah, according I, I to music therapy, you know, of the polyvagal theory, you know, people do engage people who have, for example, autism, they do engage socially under music therapy. It has to be certain frequencies, something, you know, um, I don't know, the classic that I com- that comes to mind is something like a chorus type of thing, or mm-hmm. it has to be like, you know, specific frequencies music, not necessarily like any type of music. So I, mm-hmm. I think that some clues will be there in music therapy and polyvagal theory. Hmm. I'd agree with that, well, but I think it's I don't also play. I don't play music, but I like to sing along, so I like melodic Uh music. I used to sing myself to sleep, and uh, I didn't know about the vagus nerve at that time. But, yeah, singing really stimulates that, and it makes you feel good. Yeah, it does. Um, I wonder about the the theory, you know, if there's kind of like how um, Gurdjieff talks about objective art. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, is there is there a theory of like objective music? Um, mm-hmm. Because it, it is such a personal thing. I um, I get the idea in relation to visual art that you know it, it should express uh, some deeper truths, some kind of um, mm-hmm. you know whether it's uh, ge- geometric or you know esoteric or whatever the uh, the deeper kind of symbolism is about reality that art should not necessarily just be you know, whatever splashed on the canvas or whatever molded into some random shape. Um, mm-hmm. But and I wonder if there's something like that with music too, because I, I know people who um, 
listen to, for instance, like really hardcore metal and are the mm-hmm. nicest people you will ever meet and are at peace mm-hmm. with themselves and, you know, have a great life and uh, seem to be very well and stable and adjusted. Um, and, you know, also like for myself, I really like pop jazz, which a lot of people find mm-hmm. really chaotic. Um, and I have a friend too, who can't stand that kind of music. That's just like nails mm-hmm. on a chalkboard. And for me, I love mm-hmm. it. Um, but for, you know, again, at the same time, there are people who really like to say like Neil Diamond, who I don't like, you know, and if I heard Neil Diamond, I would change chat. <laughs> so, I wonder if it's yeah. kind of like a, like a, like a key, you know, there's, there is the frequency of the music that has a certain effect that can be objectively measured and mm-hmm. slash, but at the same time, it needs to kind of fit into the keyhole of the person's uh, preference and what they like listening to. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense, and maybe maybe it has more to do with the uh, the actual frequencies themselves rather than the structure. Like maybe you know it, whether it's you're listening to metal or jazz or electronic music or whatever, it's more about the frequencies that are being used than than the actual structure of the music itself. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating, of course. I think it also has to do with you know kind of where you're at on a particular day like like you were saying Mm -hmm. Jonathan I like jazz too and um, you know there's times where things like Miles Davis you know you can handle and then it starts to morph into this more chaotic sense and all of a sudden I feel like well I think I need to turn that off right now it's like overstimulating Mm -hmm. my brain and switch to something else yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really specific, and that's that's true with me too. There are parts of jazz that I really enjoy, and parts that I don't. Even sometimes in the same song, um, if it goes mm-hmm. into this, you know, kind of really offbeat, like there's no time signature at all. Like I'm down with a seven eight, you know, or a six seven, or some of these weird time signatures. But when there's none at all, and it's just kind of like you're, you're on the trumpet, just slamming your fingers, you know, um, just making noise. That is. Mm. I don't find that enjoyable. And then I'm like, uh, I need to find something with more of a group to it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's, uh, let's go to our next, uh, our next and last connecting the dots here. And that will kind of lead us into our topic for the day. Uh, Erica, do you want to talk about this, the connection between your mental, emotional health and physical illness? Yeah, so there was this um, interesting article that was put up on SOT and its collective evolution on August 22nd. Raji Kabli is the um, woman, and she was interviewing a woman known as Organic Olivia. And the article starts out as, um, basically, we ignore the messages our body are sending us, and then we dampen them with drugs or other sort of, you know, addictive behaviors like we covered on last week's show, um, rather than addressing the underlying problem. But when sickness comes knocking, we usually find ourselves forced to deal with them. And this organic Olivia um, talks about her personal experience. Um, She had really poor and negative thoughts, and it brought on a long list of body issues, such things as IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, Uh, liver deficiency, depression, eating disorders, and then eventually parasites. Um, She turned to many doctors for help. Uh, She became ill after being given a Gardasil vaccine. And sick Mm. and tired, she literally finally decided to take back her health and was diving into research and went on to consult a Chinese medicine doctor um, as her 
health began to improve, um, so did her attitude and outlook on life. And so they have a short little interview on this article with Olivia. But some of the points that she addressed that really tie into our topic today, I'm going to list just to give our listeners an idea of what she was talking about and what we've probably all experienced at one time or another. Um, The first one she says is when you're feeling sad or depressed, you tend to overeat. And we covered this in last week's show about food addictions and whatnot. And our body tends to hold on to physical weight because it's going into survival mode. Every major organ in our body um, has an associated emotional counterpoint. So paying attention and taking care of one of them can usually offset the other. Um, Also, along with having an emotional counterpoint, every vital organ has an internal clock that it likes to follow in order for it to replenish. She also suggests drinking ginger tea is an amazing for digestive health. So if you have stomach issues or an unsettled stomach, butterflies in your stomach, ginger tea is uh, recommended in a lot of uh, alternative medicines. And then she kind of completes the list by saying parasite cleansing is totally normal and super common in many Eastern cultures. By doing a cleanse, you may see improvements in your skin, bowel movements, metabolism, energy levels, liver function, appetite, and abdominal pains. So that was just a short little article, um, again, kind of tying into this mind-body connection that, you know, our our physical health affects our mental health, and then it kind of becomes this feedback loop and, um, you know, how we choose to either ignore it or deal with it kind of leads us on a path to healing or into greater sickness and illness. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that she brought she brought up um, the uh, the Chinese medicine uh, and working with that. You know, it's it's like you know Gabor Mate has said like all these ancient systems of medicine really did look at the entire person and and would look at the emotional state of a person as a, as a means of kind of you know really sussing out what was going on. And there's, there's, it's interesting to look at um, the, uh, the Chinese medicine, the five elements. They have charts out there that show um, the different, how the different organs relate to specific um, uh, mental states or emotional states. You know, like the spleen is, um, is associated with worry and overthinking. The lungs are associated with grief and sorrow. Um, or the liver is uh, associated with anger and resentment. And, you know, I've seen this in, in just kind of working with people. Um, a lot of times when people undertake something like a liver cleanse, it'll bring up all this old anger and resentment and stuff that they've been feeling, and they kind of have to, you know, process this stuff that they've been maybe uh, repressing for a long time. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a really good way of kind of looking at what sort of a, a emotion you're, you're going through and then kind of relating that to what organ that might be uh, associated with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I can, I can definitely draw a personal connection between uh, the weight. Erica, you mentioned the weight issue. And uh, I used to be, I think I mentioned in a previous show that I used to be pretty heavy. Uh, I think I clocked in at 298 when I was my Whoa. heaviest. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But I, I can remember vividly that I was really um, all over the place emotionally during that time. Of course, probably a lot of it had to do with a bad diet and, you know, uncertain life situation and things like that, but I would just swing like a pendulum between anxiety and depression and back and forth and back and forth. And, um, 
you know, looking back at it uh, with this perspective, uh, I'm sure that the uh, the state of mind uh, contributed to that because, you know, even if you just look at causal factors and not saying that being depressed makes you obese, but, you know, being depressed mm-hmm. will cause you to, like, binge eat, you know, pizza, mm-hmm. which yeah. will then lead to other certain yeah. foregone conclusions. So it's kind of like it's a, it's a chain that all works together. Yeah. A lot of times people are using food as a means of medicating themselves to kind of like, you know, suppress those uh, those feelings that you're having by eating these comfort foods, you know, so it, it definitely is all related. Yeah, I can relate to that, too. I was in a, a very anxiety-producing relationship at one point, and when my boyfriend finally moved out, thank God, <laughs> I remember I went down into the office of the building where I lived to pay my rent. And the manager was like, "Oh my gosh, you lost so much weight." <laughs> and I didn't even, I didn't try. I, I called it the "my boyfriend moved out and I don't care" diet. <laughs> I wonder if there's a more uh, like an esoteric connection between that as well, saying that you yeah. you drop the weight of this person metaphorically, mm-hmm. and so then literally yeah. you also drop weight. You know. Yeah, it was such such a stress relief. I'll tell you. And you you see that a lot in relationship dynamics. It usually goes one way or the other when uh, people go through divorce. They either lose an extreme amount of weight or they gain an extreme amount of weight. And it really, you know, depending on how they're processing it, um, you know, if they feel like they're losing something that they know is toxic or not good, maybe they lose a lot of weight. Or if they feel like they need to fill some sort of void, then the, the eating addiction starts to come in and, you know, you start to re- repress everything with food or try and fill that empty space with um, carbs. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads us into our topic for the day. And uh, I, I had kind of a... Um, a premise, I guess you would call it a premise, that I, that I wanted to throw out there uh, for us to discuss for a moment. Um, uh, the question being, why is this not a, a bigger deal? Um, and I guess mm-hmm. maybe we could just r- kind of riff and speculate on that for a moment. You know, do you think it? By this, I mean the the mental, emotional, physical connection, um, <clears throat> because you know, if you go to like a, a very large hospital in the city say, you know, or really anywhere, but I'm kind of using like a metro hospital as an example here, the chances are that the doctor is not going to bring up this connection. They're going to diagnose you based on what they see or based on the test results, and then they're going to give you a prescription. Um, Same with what Doug mentioned about psychiatrists. You know, they're going to look it up in the DSM and, oh, you're feeling this and this and this, and so here's a pill, or here's five pills, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you think the reason that this connection is not more widely known or or practiced in in modern medicine is it strictly financial i mean could could it really be that simple that it's just you know for the benefit of the pharma companies or is there um you know is there some kind of a collective uh amnesia that's that's worked its way into the medical establishments uh where you know you get into a rut and so the medical establishment as a whole has kind of gotten into a rut of doing things a certain way and nobody really challenges it um i know we have a lot we've we've touched on different stories uh in the past about doctors being smacked down you know by the fda or by the ama um for you know expressing kind of more holistic opinions and so there is a 
there's an oppression sort of bullying factor there as well. But I guess it just makes me curious, you know, if I've, I've known some doctors and, and by and large, the doctors that I've known are compassionate people. They became doctors because they wanted to help people. They wanted to heal people. Um, and, you know, if you were able to show to them, like, here's this really strong connection, we can totally, uh, you know, show evidence for this actual hard data thing. There is a connection between the state of mind and state of physical health that they would, that they would pick that up and, and run with it and kind of work with that more. So what do you guys yeah. think about what, what some of the reasons are that this is not more widely practiced? Several things, uh, at least from my side. Corruption of science, for one. Doctors, mm. you know, uh, financial interest, corruption of science, psychopathology science, basically. We are not taught about psychology, emotions, you know, uh, medical school. And it creates a lot of suffering for the patients or the doctors themselves. It's just like a huge neglected part of healing, you know, how to deal with emotions, you know. Some people describe going even to med school, like, you know, stressful, it's like PTSD, you go, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's a continuous PTSD, and when you get out, you know, it's like, it's like you're more easily, easily to program that way as well. And uh, it's like a multifaceted problem, but it creates so much suffering from all, you know, all parts, all sides. Except if you are a psychopath and you're okay with that, you know. Mm-hmm. That's a book, really. Yeah. I think that I think. in many ways doctors' hands are tied just because of the way that the medical system is set up. It's so compartmentalized. So if you go into a doctor and you have an emotional issues, well, they'll send you to a psychiatrist. Or if you're having hormone issues, they'll send you to an endocrinologist. Or kidney issues, you go to a urologist. Everything is just split and broken up into different parts. And you know, like we were talking about earlier, um, looking at a person and treating them as a whole, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time, and doctors just don't have time for that. They're allotted a certain amount of time to spend with each patient, and they can't go over that or they'll lose money. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with inertia, too. You know, like the system mm-hmm. is set up in this way, like you're talking about, uh, Tiff, and I think it, it it's going to require a, like a huge expenditure of energy to try and change these things. You know, these it is this kind of uh, the way things are done has this inertia to it. You know, it's like it, it's it's all going in this very specific direction, and to try and put the brakes on that and kind of like reassess and maybe go in a different direction um, would take would take a lot. You know, it would take a lot for uh, you know an endocrinologist to kind of say, well, we have to look at this from a more big picture. Uh, you know, their training doesn't look at that generally. And it's funny, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about um, how he talks about this Bermuda Triangle, you know, this idea that, you know, a study will come out showing a very clear, um, uh, you know, uh, connection between uh, the emotional state and uh, a disease. You know, uh, he, he talks about uh, kind of a few specific uh, specific studies that have come out that show a very clear connection. And he says, but these studies, although they come out and they're published in these journals, they, they, nothing is done about it. It just kind of disappears from the radar. You know, you'd think a doctor reading this would say, oh, wow, look, at there's this emotional connection between uh, uh, heart disease and, and depression maybe. Um, so maybe this, this, is, this is a new way for me to kind of uh, address this with my patients. But it just doesn't happen. It just it, it kind of like comes to the surface, people read the article, and then it disappears. Nothing is actually done about it. 
Yeah, and even for the money, uh, some some healthcare systems in the world are arranged uh, in a way that you only have 15 minutes at the most to see a patient. Mm. Um, here in Spain, sometimes they give you five minutes at the most, and you have the you know hall, the hallway full of patients waiting. You know, mm. so the system for <laughs> one, uh, but also continual medical education because you know. People, there is a lot of information, like too much information, and some people don't have the even the skills to assimilate or or keep up with everything. So they rely on official medical organisms for the information they will absorb, put in practice, whatever. Basically, like email editions or conferences they are able to attend while they're um, uh, during the labor day, doing work, you know. And um, conferences, they're sponsored, and basically almost 100% sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. So, yes, like, corruption of science is really like, uh, has many, many places, uh, aspects to it, but I think the system by itself, in essence, is pretty much, um, how to say, evil. <laughs> because, you know, it yeah. doesn't satisfy doctors the way they treat your patients. Well, at least uh, that's the general impression, and I'm sure some are, you know, having a big time, you know. But in general, you know, uh, they're unsatisfied of the health practice they're giving, and the patients are suffering the most. Uh, they don't get answers. They don't have the money to pay, you know, for the technology of some diagnostic tests. Well, you can get a lot of information just by sitting with your patient for one or two hours and just go through everything, the basic medical history. It's been mm -hmm. bulletproof for thousands of years. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but, you know, that's the way it is. This, this system is evil, basically. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah, that's why you see more and more say, people um, going to, like, kind of holistic practitioners. You know, you go to like a naturopath or a Chinese medicine doctor or something along those lines because they will kind of take the time and they will sit with the patient and try and figure out what exactly is going on. And, you know, a lot of these practitioners will kind of utilize other, you know, mainstream people. It's like, you know, well, we do need a blood test here, so why don't we send you to this doctor and get the blood test and see what's going on here rather than only going to the, the doctor that has this kind of specific narrow field of focus. They'll use it as kind of a tool. You know, it's like this doctor knows about this, so why don't we find out what's going on in this area and kind of take that into the whole picture. Um, I think a lot of people who are kind of taking control of their own health are, are going from this sort of perspective and using these specialists more as a tool to figure what's going on instead of putting themselves entirely under their care. And, you know, for, you know, every, every, it's like the old saying, you know, to a, to a carpenter, every, every problem is a nail that has to be hammered down. So it's it's like, you know, getting a more holistic perspective on these things actually works a lot better. Yeah. Well, and I think Dr. Yeah. Mate does a really good job of that. Um, if our listeners are interested, there's an interview um, about when the body says no, how emotions can cause or prevent deadly disease. Um, it was an interview on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. And like Doug was saying, he talks about this yeah, Bermuda Triangle, but also because he was a palliative care doctor, you know, and he would sit with people as they were dying, he 
again, like his book that we mentioned last week in the realm of hungry ghosts, he had this opportunity to have these conversations with these people about, you know, their stress, what's going on in their life, their relationships. And he really, in this book, delineates all these kind of intense cancers, breast cancer, and um, other illnesses that are directly connected to your emotional state. And I think he even termed, uh, used a term called psycho, please correct me if I'm wrong, it's psychoneuroimmunology, mm-hmm. right? So this mm-hmm. mind-body connection that, that um, his patients were suffering. It's really a fascinating book. There's also uh, an interview with him if you don't have time to read the article about called, called When the Body Says No, Caring for Ourselves While Caring for Others. And, and those are on the SOT page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember watching that. Gabor Matt is very inspiring, and he does come from a background of you know working with um, palliative care, you know, and speech cancer, and people with drug addictions, as covered on the mm-hmm. earlier show. Yeah. Yeah, he really yeah, he... stresses that the mind and the body can't be separated, and uh, he said some of the the things that make people ill is their strict adherence to duty um, versus caring for themselves or addressing the needs of the self. Um, He named that as a risk factor for cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. He also said that believing that you're responsible for other people's emotions or feeling that you can never, ever disappoint people or say no kind of sets you up for illness. Um, he thinks that who gets sick and who doesn't is no accident. It's kind of tied to your emotions or how you set boundaries, um, and that can affect your health. Yeah. Yeah, he draws, like, a very real kind of physical connection. He says that, you know, if you if you do have these sorts of um, emotional states or, or you are kind of repressing in some way or um, whatever it might be, that does have a direct effect on the immune system. So if you're somebody who doesn't have very good boundaries in your life, then your immune system doesn't have very good boundaries. And you you can, you know, this is just one way that the the kind of emotional state can end up having a physical manifestation. You know, if you, you know, somebody who's immune compromised, it might be because in their life they don't have these boundaries set up and they don't, uh, you know, um, kind of stand up for themselves and kind of define themselves in some way. They they, They take all their time to be responsible for other people's emotions. So it, it, mm-hmm. his work is very, very interesting. And he also explains the other extreme, like, okay, there are people pleasers, people who don't know how to put boundaries. And he also explains how there are those who put a lot of boundaries, the other way of protecting um, mm-hmm. oneself from the stress. He, I'm quoting um, from his book. Um, um, the other way of, of protecting oneself from the stress of threatened relationships is emotional shutdown. To feel mm-hmm. safe, the vulnerable person withdraws from others and closes against intimacy. The coping style may avoid anxiety and block the subjective experience of stress, but not the physiology of it. Emotional intimacy is a psychological and biological necessity. And those who build walls against intimacy are not self-regulated, just emotionally frozen. Their stress from having a met need will be high. So the physiology, biology, psychology of it, you'll end up sick just as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and he shares how the immune system functions like a brain. It has a memory, it has reactive capacity, it has learning capacity, and um, he even called it the floating brain, right? It's interaction with the brain up in our heads. And then he goes on mm. to uh, cite the, this UCLA psychiatrist, Dr. Daniel Siegel. He um, coined a phrase called the interpersonal neurobiology, and it indicates that our biology of our brains and our bodies is in, inter in interreaction with our personal relationships, so how we express ourselves in those relationships or how we suppress ourselves has a lot to do with our health. And you can really see that, you know, when you, when you need to say something and you don't and you, you end up with sores in your mouth or, you know, you, you withhold how you're feeling and your breathing gets shallow. I mean, these are all things that happen almost instantaneously or you have a confrontation with someone and you get butterflies in your stomach. It's almost as if the body instantaneously is connecting with those things going on in your head. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's really interesting, too, because... You, you kind of drift into this sort of new agey side of things where people are, are pretty quick to kind of dismiss um, these ideas. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with it, but Louise Hay wrote a book um, back in 1982, and it's been reprinted so many mm -hmm. times. It's very popular, where she connects. It's called Heal Your Body, and she connects all these different ailments with um, <clears throat> uh, emotional states and how those things kind of connect. And, you know, it's only now that kind of science is catching up with this thing and saying, no, no, there actually is really a mechanism for this. You know, I, I think the, you know, the, the, the serious scientist or, or medical establishment would still be kind of hesitant to, to take any of this kind of stuff on board. But it's actually, um, you know, there's, there's a very real connection here when you, when you look at, um, you know, one example is she talks about uh, constipation and how constipation is, is kind of related to holding on to things. You know, there's this kind of mm -hmm. metaphoric connection where, you know, you're, you're holding on to, to old stuff. You won't kind of let something go, and that ends up manifesting in the body as, as, as constipation. It can become like a real kind of chronic problem if it's, if it's something that you're chronically repressing. Um, there was an update, well, it's not really an update, but another book um, written by uh, Michael J. Link, uh, Lincoln, who actually... Um, he, he's kind of an interesting guy, and he has a, an Indian name as well. Um, Narayan Singh is his kind of uh, his, his Indian name um, because I think he took on the Sikh religion at one point. Uh, and he has this massively thick book that has all these very intricate um, ties between different emotional states. Uh, the book's called Messages from the Body, and you can look up very specific stuff like not just having foot problems but getting down to which toe you're having the problem with and which segment of the toe and kind of the emotional pattern that, that exists behind that. So to have Gabor Mate kind of um, show this uh, psychoneuroimmunology kind of uh, th th this very real connection that happens there kind of legitimizes a lot of these things. Yeah, I've, I've always been surprised how accurate Louis Hay has been, you know, even though you know that, okay, that disease, be that particular inflammatory problem because of the diet and so forth, because mm -hmm. of but because of the body mind connection, you know, you read the explanations that she gives the emotional patterns for certain conditions and and you just say like I cannot deny that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because a lot of times, you know, when we do have these physical ailments, 
the, the first thought is like what physically is going on, you know, and have I been exposed to, uh, you know, some kind of bacteria from food poisoning or something like that, or is there this kind of thing? But I think like despite the fact that these things do often have a physical connection, like diet, uh, which is the case in a lot of situations, I think that you can still look at things from an emotional standpoint because of the way that it's manifesting. Like somebody who has a bad diet could have any number of different things going wrong. They could have digestive issues. They could have mental issues. Uh, it could be, you know, arthritis or some kind of inflammation of the joints. So the way in which it manifests, I think, has more to do with the kind of the, the emotional connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes and I think, think we've about... all experienced that, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> there were two two people that I knew, uh, who, uh, you know, again, well, remain nameless, I'll try to keep it as, as anonymous as I can. Um, one person, uh, both of these people have since passed. Uh, they both had cancer. One person had uh, colon cancer and the other person had stomach cancer. And mm-hmm. uh, the one person uh, with colon cancer was the the nicest, most empathetic, most compassionate person, like open, that you could imagine, really, like really awesome person. Mm-hmm. The person who had stomach cancer was not a mean person, but was very closed off, um, very rigid, um, very traditional. Like, you know, it wouldn't try, you know, tea because it was kind of gay, you know, like that kind of thing, like um, was very tight, kind of a tight person. So they both, they both ended up, you know, passing from these very similar types of cancer, but their personalities were so different. The common thing between them was that they both drank a lot of beer. Um, and so it, it makes me wonder, like, where, you know, obviously it's not just a one-to-one with the emotion and the disease, uh, mm. you know, 100%, um, but there, there are also uh, environmental and, and dietary factors that play into this as well. But I, I'm curious mm. about, you know, how they they manifest in different parts of the body. Yeah, yeah I have a, you know, a similar story. I worked at the hospice for a while, and... Um, there was one lady that I had as, as a patient. She had uh, colon cancer, and she was just the sweetest lady you ever meet. She mm-hmm. come to terms with it. She had a very, well, from what I could see, a loving relationship with her family and her husband. And she was just so sweet and so welcoming and always very pleasant despite what she was going through. And then I had another patient who had liver cancer, and he was really, really mean, like curse you out, hang up the phone, slam the door in your face, won't talk to you mean. I mean, he he would even try like um, alternative medicine. Um, He was taking uh, cannabis oil and smoking it, but he just could not get over that anger. And uh, Mm. so they said in Chinese medicine, like the liver is the seat of the anger. And I can really see that in him. Yeah. Well, just from the two examples you guys have given, you've got these people with colon cancer who are the very sweet, very giving, um, very compassionate. But I wonder if maybe they were suppressing themselves in some way in order to be yeah. that way for other people. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I have to keep keep my own stuff at bay so that I can be there for other people. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, these these it's it, it's really interesting. You know, I worked with. Um, a, I had a mentor when I first got out of nutrition school with this this woman who was a uh, holistic nutritionist who had been in the business for like 15 years or something like that and had, you know, thousands of di- different patients. And she had gotten more and more into the emotional side of things just because she had recognized all these different patterns. 
And one thing she said is that um, she gave a couple of different examples. Like some, she found that every patient she had um, who was kind of over uh, overcome with candida, so had a really strong candida infection, she said they were always very overwhelmed people who like mm-hmm. didn't deal well with with the stuff, their 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 daily life kind of stuff. They were always very overwhelmed. So here they are overwhelmed with this kind of fungal infection. And she said mm-hmm. that uh, she found that anybody who had kind of the chronic fatigue uh, fibromyalgia type picture was always a very uh, had a very uh, martyr type stance on things like, oh no, you go ahead, I'll be fine, you know that kind of thing. Like, oh no, I'll stay back and and clean the house while you guys go and have fun. Like they always had that kind of martyr personality. So it's it, it it's very interesting to see that there's these kind of connections where it's a person's kind of stance on life leads to the kind of uh, disorders they end up with. Mm-hmm. Well, it reminds me yeah, of yeah. stories as well of people, cancer survivors, um, those who fit the, the profile, a uh, certain profile, apparently around 10%, according to some studies, have um, you know, a greater chance of, of recovering or curing themselves. And some of the personality profiles was that they get a lot of trouble for everybody, you know, to the nurses, to the doctors. They were like, you know, the typical patients that everybody will hate in quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's actually the best profile for healing. Huh. There you go. Yeah. Maybe it's because they were expressing yeah. it. You know, they weren't holding anything in. Exactly. They were expressing yeah. themselves. They were assertive and they came across as annoying to to the system. Mm. But that's actually <laughs> that that makes me think of uh George Burns. I, I just heard a story uh about him the other day, so it was kind of fresh on my mind. But um you know, he lived to be a hundred years old. He was born in eighteen ninety six, died in nineteen ninety six. And uh, he religiously smoked cigars. And in the story that I had heard, it was a person talking about how they had traveled with him for a while, that he uh, drank martinis and did not have a limit and was just like, keep them coming. You know, mm-hmm. and like every time before a show, he would have two martinis chased with a coffee, do his show, mm-hmm. and then just drink martinis off into the night. Now, that's not an excuse for everybody to go off and drink as many martinis as you want. But, uh, Darn. <laughs> I know, damn it. But drawing the drawing the comparison between that, you know, his very evident, you know, somewhat apparently carcinogenic lifestyle, uh, and his personality, he did not have a filter on his mouth. He would say whatever <laughs> came to mind at any time, and he wasn't like mean, but he just did not filter himself at all, and he didn't care what anybody thought about him. And so it, it makes me wonder, you know, did his personality? contribute to his living so long because he didn't pent up uh, these emotional issues that a lot of people Mm. do. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. I was reading, well, going back to reread certain parts of this book, I read it for uh, maybe maybe about a year and a half ago. It's called The Healing Power of Illness by Thorwald Deathlifson and Rudiger Dahlke, two German guys. Uh, psychologists, um, and they say, like speaking of George Burns not filtering himself and not caring what anybody thinks about him, they say that um, symptoms or illness uh, is a sign of a lack of wholeness Mm. and a lack of harmony at the level of the consciousness. So he says that um, 
people are basically bipolar. They have a light side and a dark side or a shadow side and failing to acknowledge and accept and integrate that shadow part of yourself, which is like rejected parts of yourself or reality that you don't want to face. It leads to illness or symptoms. And if a person refuses to live out whatever principle is in their, their shadow side, whatever it's saying, if they refuse to live that out, it descends from the, the consciousness level and it descends into the body where it appears as a symptom. And the person at that point, they're forced to live it out and manifest every principle that they've ever rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that... Um, Medicine, they try to take away the causes of illness or mask the symptoms, but illness really is too crafty to be shut down in that way, and it'll find a new cause to justify its continued existence. Mm. Like they use an example of a person who really, really, really wants to build a house. They're not going to stop just because somebody took all the bricks away. They're going to use wood to build that house instead. An interesting thing that they said, like relating to the article that Gabby talked about, about critters, basically. Um, Bacteria nor viruses cause disease. We just use them as tools for manifesting our illnesses, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting. So if, if you're rejecting part of yourself or there's aspects of your life that you don't want to face and you're in some situation and you're basically lying to yourself about what's mm. going on in reality, it's going to manifest as a symptom to force you yeah. to see what's going on. That's really interesting. That actually kind of mirrors the um, the homeopathic perspective on things, too. Um, in, in Within homeopathy, I mean, they, they, they look at kind of, there's different levels of manifestation. There's the physical, the emotional, and the mental. And they say that if you suppress one, It'll it'll just creep up in in some other way. And the one mm-hmm. that they use an example of a lot is somebody who has eczema as a baby. Um, and you know the medical model will kind of spread cortisone cream on that, which just with, from their perspective, all you're doing is suppressing it at that point. You're not actually uh, getting to the root cause and kind of dealing with it. Well, they say that it is uh, overwhelming the number of people who have had cortisone treatment for eczema develop asthma. Uh, mm-hmm. Later on in their life, as, a, as you know, a young uh, a young child or um, you know preteen kind of thing, they'll they'll develop asthma, and it's like it's the same kind of thing. If you're repressing an emotional, it'll it'll you know it'll find a way to manifest in some other way. And within the homeopathy thing, it kind of there's this hierarchy that if you're suppressing physical symptoms, eventually it'll manifest as a as an emotional symptom. And if you're suppressing emotional symptoms, it'll eventually manifest as a mental symptom. So somebody who's suppressing their uh, de- uh, depression with uh, drugs uh, can start to have cognitive difficulties, uh, start losing their memory, having these kinds of things happen to them. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that a lot of these things, you know, we look at as side effects of the drug. Well, it might not be so much a side effect of the drug as it's a side effect of repressing these uh, mm-hmm. these symptoms that are trying to communicate something to you. Mm-hmm. So I guess the point being, uh, everybody should just go out and today speak your mind and don't hold back. (laughs) (laughs) You have to express it in a a healthy manner. Just don't go out and just start going off on everybody. (laughs) It's a learning curve, but it's possible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I wanted to... uh, uh, 
Oh, ahead, bring up some, some degrees of escalations that they talk about in this book, The Healing Power of Illness, because there's seven degrees, and the seventh one was really surprising to me. <laughs> but I'll go over it. Like they said that the first degree of escalation of an illness is some kind of psychological phenomenon, something that's going on in in your mind, your subconscious that you're not facing. And then the second degree would be uh, if if the first degree is not addressed, like the psychological phenomenon, it'll go to the second degree. It'll turn into a functional disturbance, mm-hmm. um, some kind of symptom. And the third degree is an acute physical disturbance, like uh, accidents or wounds. Mm-hmm. Like people think like um, of the mind-body connection, you just get sick physically, you get some illness. But I think accidents come to play in this too. Mm-hmm. Um the fourth is if these physical disturbances aren't addressed, it'll turn into a chronic condition. And the fifth is an incurable process. And then the sixth is death if mm-hmm. none of these things are addressed. But then they say, as the seventh degree of escalation, like if you die from some kind of chronic disease and you still haven't managed to confront your shadow self and integrate it, at your next reincarnation, you might have, you might be born with a congenital deformity as a form mm. of like coma. So wow. I thought that was really interesting and thought provoking. Yeah. So you have to wonder, like, children who are born with these congenital illnesses—is there something in their previous life that they didn't face or they didn't live out that they have to learn? I mean, it sounds like you're kind of like blaming the person for bringing it on themselves, but Gabor Mate said, you know, there's no blame here. It's just these are unconscious things that just happen. And mm-hmm. it's not like anyone's doing it on purpose. They they have no idea that it's happening under this under the surface. Yeah, it's like the concept of like all there is all that exists are lessons. Right? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you, you have have these opportunities, like your life is kind of an opportunity to, to learn these lessons. And if you're not learning it, then you're just going to keep on in this same kind of cycle over and over again until you can kind of confront this and, and, and actually learn from it. Mm-hmm. I think that, that kind of draws a comparison, too, between, um, you know, the feeling that you get from confronting certain things. Like, I, I know for myself, I'm, I'm usually pretty shy and I'm a non-confrontational um, I, I don't like to, you know, get into spats with people or to, you know, call somebody out on something. However, <clears throat> the times in my life when I have been able to kind of muster up the courage to do that, it feels so good. You know, mm-hmm. you, might feel like, uh, you might feel like kind of a jerk for a minute, but you're like, no, I was in the right, and I said what was on my mind, and that feels great. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the feeling of that, I think, is, a, you know, not that everything that feels good is good, but in a certain way that that's a, a, a confirmation, um, that that's, that's a release of something that was pent up. Mm. Yeah, there's a certain yeah. feeling of empowerment you get for standing up for yourself. Like I've done it, I can recall doing it like a few times in my life. Um, I gave it a name like turning the bitch on, <laughs> where somebody's <laughs> just obviously doing wrong and you have to tell them about it and you have to say, no, in so many words, it just you know, say I'm not going to stand up for this. This is wrong, and makes you feel like nobody can, you know, kind of mess with you that way. It makes you feel like 
Yeah. Yeah, this is me. This is my space, and I'm going to protect myself. Mm. Yeah. Yep. But um, something that had crossed my mind earlier while we were talking about this and, and talking about the, uh, you know, the idea that, say, allowing yourself to be a doormat um, or being conflicted emotionally about other people's issues. Um, Doug, like you were saying, the kind of victim mentality where, like, no, you go ahead and take advantage of me. That's fine. You know, um, mm-hmm. that uh, it made me think about psychopathy. And uh, since uh, psychopaths do not have this um, emotional component, um, they don't wonder whether they've hurt someone. They don't have that empathy or that compassion towards other people. Um, would that allow them to essentially live longer? Um, because mm-hmm. I just saw the other day that uh, George Bush Sr. had his 90th birthday. And I'm like, mm-hmm. if anybody should shrivel, should shrivel up from the sheer evil, you know, it's within them. It should be him. Um, yeah, the same thing but, with Dick know, Cheney not... and his multiple heart problems. Well, yeah, I mean, he doesn't have a yeah. heart, literally. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so it just makes me wonder, is there a connection there? You know, there are people that, um, you know, and obviously the diagnosis of psychopathy is very hard to make. Uh, you can't really effectively make it at a distance. It has to be rigorously studied. Um I will say, however, there are certain people, politicians like Bush Sr., you know, like evidenced by his actions uh, throughout his life um, and, you know, in the government and the things that he perpetrated. Um, you know, it's it's certainly possible. I can say that much without feeling conflicted about that. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, is is there a component there that allows these people to, to live longer um, because they're not conflicted? They don't have that that inner struggle. It's it could possible. be because I knew a guy who was just an awful, awful person. He was an abuser, wife beater, abuses kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, he raped people. And he ended up with anal cancer, and he did not die. He's still alive <laughs> to this day. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I can't think of several examples. Yeah. I mean, it, may, it might have to do with, you know, um, these disease manifestations are kind of like you're you're not kind of expressing it's almost like you're not expressing your soul you know what i mean it's like you you've got something to express you've got something to do in this lifetime and you're suppressing that in some way and then that ends up kind of leading to these uh these different disease states so i mean if a, if a, if a psychopath you know from from one perspective they're kind of soulless you know they don't have this kind of inner um, life force, this inner kind of drive that, you know, there might not even be anything in there that particularly needs to be expressed. So they're not really suppressing anything, like you said, Jonathan. So mm-hmm. it, it it might just be, I mean, that, all that being said, I think that there are plenty of examples of, of uh, psychopathic individuals who do end up with some kind of chronic disease. Um, and that might be something that's just purely on a physical level, you know, because they're not taking care of themselves in some way. And it, who knows? Maybe maybe there isn't the emotional component there, and it just you know whatever they end up with is just more kind of uh, reflective of of just how they've treated themselves physically. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or maybe this stress of being you know under another bigger predatory psychopath. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good mm. point. Sure. And then their their effect on others, you know, um, 
how they what was the name of the book about women women who love psychopaths was one and um mm. there was another one um oh how to spot a dangerous man mm. and mm. um you know that these personalities in in how to spot a dangerous man it could be it could be how to spot a dangerous woman is all also but the book was basically written from the perspective of women who had suffered so greatly in these relationships and how their physical emotional um health deteriorated rapidly you know and um i really recommend those books for anyone who who is in a type of situation like that because it's really helps you realize that you're not alone and that you know these psychopathic or soulless people can really you know destroy you slowly and short and you know even in Gabor Mate's book when the body says no these these women that have breast cancer or these a lateral sclerosis this slow deterioration of just trying to do the right thing and be the good wife or be the good mother and not really taking into account the fact that these people are are sucking their life force basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and possibly another good book because some people, you know, uh, not acknowledging emotions is a huge source of stress. But some people are literally so wounded, so injured that they don't know what they feel anymore. Mm. <laughs> uh, I think a good book, for, uh, it's also Women Who Run With the Wolves. And it also applies mm. for men as well. It's an international bestseller by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And basically how to heal you know, your injured instincts, you know, your instincts, your emotions. And it really teaches a lot about yourself and others. And it's a really great reading. Mm-hmm. Excellent book. Yeah. And I love the way that it's all based on, you know, what some people might consider fairy tales or old stories. But they are so applicable to our experiences today, you know, the story of Bluebeard and his torturing of his wives. And, you know, I mean, she has such a great way of of kind of telling a story. I mean, she's really a master storyteller, but interweaving all those kind of archetypes into the story that, that anyone can really identify with. I mean, we've all had those experiences like little red coat, you know, Mm -hmm. um, great writer. I really enjoy mm-hmm. her work. Yeah, for sure. And that really brings up the, the point of um, listening to your gut. I think Gabor Mate brought this up in one of his talks. Like he asked the audience, was there ever a time when you had a really strong gut feeling and you ignored it and you ended up regretting it afterwards? Mm-hmm. The thing is you have to be in touch with those gut feelings and you have to have practice listening to it and actually following through on what your gut is telling you in order to learn your lessons really. So I think that's a big part of keeping yourself healthy is listening to your gut and trying to follow your instinct. Sure. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to sort of uh, emotional intelligence or what they term emotional intelligence. Uh, you know, actually educating yourself on your emotions because we so often just ignore them. Yeah, I think it, it, in the, um, How to Spot a Dangerous Man, they called them red flags. <laughs> <laughs> 
so for those in the dating world, you know, usually in the on the first or second date, if you get a red flag, bad sign, you know, you really need to, and, and she talks about the tendency to brush it aside, you know, I would say that applies in, in relationships with people as well, you know, your first couple of days with meeting someone is some gut response or a red flag comes up to really pay attention to that and um, keep it you know, tucked away somewhere there, but not to brush those those sensations aside. I mean, we're so taught in this culture to be understanding and accepting and people will change. And uh, from personal experience, that, that doesn't really happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I go back going, gosh, I should have paid attention to that red flag 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or the BS meter. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Or something just doesn't ring true. You know, you can feel it uh, in, in, like Doug was talking about, in body sensations like we talked about in last week's show, the pain in your neck or, you know, your clenching of your jaw or you find your shoulders get tense. You know, that that's your body telling you, you know, something to pay attention to and don't just brush aside. Yeah, that, that invariably happens to me when I'm, you know, ignoring something. Uh, or I'm, I'm stressed about something and I'm kind of lying to myself and I don't want to realize that, give it, you know, a day or two and pretty soon my neck is really tight or I've got a toothache. Um, usually things like that crop up in parallel. And it, it's pretty mm-hmm. clear now. I mean, it's not like I can read myself perfectly, but it, it's become more clear um, over the last uh, maybe five or six years. Whereas I remember in the past being like, ah, oh, this sucks. I just, you know, I'm, I'm hurting and why, and I don't know, you know, um, but I think learning those signs, you know, and learning about what's happening in your body as well as what's happening in your life allows you to draw those connections and say, okay, well, like you had mentioned earlier, Erica, that, you know, my, my tooth hurts. So I must, there must be something I'm not saying, uh, you know, <laughs> and my neck hurts. So I'm stressed out and I'm clenching my teeth. Um, so what well, am I, I remember- stressed out about? And then, uh, Louise oh, Hay, uh, Louise Hay does say um, in in the book that Doug mentioned that uh, teeth issues are deep seated beliefs. Mm. So maybe that you know that ingrained, like uh, Gaber Mate talks about in a lot of his lectures, that ingrained sense of duty or that ingrained sense of being the martyr. You know, if your teeth start hurting, maybe it's some some habit that you picked up a long time ago and the teeth are, are like your little red flag, like what's this what's this deep seated belief that I'm holding on to that's not helping me move forward. Yeah. I've actually got I've got the book here and it says that teeth represent de- decisions, uh long standing indecisiveness, inability to break down ideas for analysis and decisions. So is that um like the phrase that somebody is toothless? Mm, I think that yeah. could play into it. Yeah. But um, in yeah. this book, again, The Healing Power of Illness, which I highly recommend, um, they give a few rules on trying to um, interpret your symptoms. So the first rule is to ignore all apparent causal relationships. Not to say mm. that, you know, there aren't certain physical causes for an illness, like say you catch some bug or something, but whatever chemical or physiological cause you think is causing your symptoms, it's not the pressing issue. Just recognize that the symptoms exist. Mm 
And then the second mm-hmm. rule is to focus on the thoughts, themes, fantasies, and emotions that were occupying you at the time that your symptom occurred. Like what kind of mood were you in or was there something new that happened in your life? And when you're going through this, pay particular attention to things that seem meaningless or unimportant because so many times we're taught to repress our feelings or think about, um, you know, that doesn't really matter, that's not important. So those are the things that you should pay particular attention to because the stuff that you repress is the stuff that makes you sick. And the third rule is to listen to the way that symptoms are described and abstract it to a psychological level because language is very psychosomatic. Like, for example, people might say that I can't bend over because my back is too rigid or I'm breaking out in a rash and language will give give you a clue as the underlying meaning of where your symptoms might be coming from. Um, the fourth mm-hmm. rule is sure. to ask yourself, what is this symptom stopping me from doing or what is this symptom making me do? Like some symptoms will make you stay in bed, like telling you that you need to rest, you need to slow down. Mm-hmm. Other ones prevent you from participating in certain activities like sports or hobbies. <laughs> and the really good mm-hmm. ones keep you from going to work. <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, you need to pay attention to what behavioral changes the symptoms cause because that can give you a clue as to what might be going on under the surface. And the last rule is if the hat fits, wear it. So if you think you might be on to something as to where your symptoms are coming from, don't push it away. Don't push it into the shadow and ignore it because then it will just move deeper. So if you come up with something... That could be also a good thing for for meditation, like you know, working on the on those suggestions you're explaining, and mm-hmm. doing the prayer of the soul for and for through areolas, eebreeze.org, because it's really has a powerful seat of meditation. You know, it literally says, "Clear my eyes that I can see, clear my ears that I can hear, clear my heart that I may know and love." and the holiness of true existence, you know, it's a powerful seed to work out some of this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and discern what, what is the root of the problem or how to stay in touch with your emotions. Mm-hmm. Meditation. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely important to, uh, to recognize those things as they come and then, like you said, if not, uh, push it down, you know, and, and mm-hmm. deal with it. The, uh, I think our our bodies, uh, as well as our, our inner minds, um, what you might call your conscience, has a way mm-hmm. of kind of nagging at you. And I think most of us have had that experience in one form or another where there's something that's happening that you're ignoring, and it just keeps coming back and it keeps coming back. And finally, you have to be like, oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, yes, mm-hmm. I have to deal with this. All right. Um <clears throat> So, you know, I think it's important to uh, to do that and, and not to go off into into other distractions. I've definitely had a lot of experiences like that. So I've got a Ph.D. in ignoring important issues. <laughs> Me too. Well, it's, uh, this might be a good time for us to take a little break and uh, go to uh, Zoya's pet health segment. She's got some information for us today on some misconceptions about uh, feline nutrition and uh, how to how to do proper nutrition for your cats. 
Um, so let's go to Zoe for a few minutes, and when we come back, we are going to wrap up the show with uh, a recipe for lamb tahine. Is that, Erica, did I pronounce that right, tahine? Tajine. Tajine, okay. Tajine. It's Moroccan lamb. Nice. All right, we'll be back after this. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, I would like to talk again about nutrition. It's an important topic, especially when there are so many misconceptions and myths. More so, uh, these misconceptions are being promoted by the veterinarians, perhaps uh, not out of any conscience attempt uh, to deceive, but out of ignorance, and because the byproduct of such practice is more business and more profit to the clinic. For example, this summer I did a short uh, internship in one of the big city clinics and had the chance to see how they operate. Uh, first, uh, they all did their best to provide the best care they, could, they possibly could. No doubt about that. But what is also clear that it is a business and the lion's share of the profits came not only from annual vaccinations but also from uh, chronic problems, particularly the ones that had to do with urinary obstruction in cats, a problem that is tightly related to dry food. What's more, after the problem was diagnosed, uh, an owner was advised to start feeding the cat with another specialized and more expensive dry food, uh, when it was the dry food that caused the problem in the first place. It's true that specialized dry food uh, is designed to solve various problems that led to the creation of crystals and the subsequent, uh, subsequent urinary obstruction. But sure, you will agree that preventing the problem from happening in the first place is a much better alternative. Not long ago, when speaking with my research instructor, I was again reminded uh, about the number one rule of veterinary care. Good veterinarians should have nothing to do when they come to work if various prevention procedures are being followed properly and if the diet and upkeep are species appropriate. What is left is only dealing with emergency cases. But of course, this is utopia uh, in our current world, especially when the purpose of most of veterinarian clinics is to make profit and not only to provide an important service. Also, some veterinarians lack basic understanding about the animals they treat and even if maybe they are well versed in their physiology and various treatment procedures, when it comes to nutrition in many cases they are very ignorant about what is considered to be optimal to the specific animal. What's more, due to the ignorance they can't offer adequate advice to the owners about the proper upkeep and care of the animal that may prevent most of the visits to the veterinarian. Uh, so this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to talk about some uh, of the misconceptions regarding nutrition for cats. We are going to talk about five main myths. Now, the first myth is that dry food is good food for cats. Now, there is more and more evidence that dry food is a probable source of many chronic health is issues, urinary arthritis, kidney, diabetes, and even dental problems are just a few of the diseases now being associated with dry food diets. Natural diet is without a doubt the best and most logical solution. And uh, since cats are obligatory carnivores, 
the diet should contain up to uh, 95% of animal protein. The second needs is that dry food is important for cleaning teeth. Well, cat's teeth are designed for tearing and shredding, not grinding. In fact, because of the size and texture, uh, most dry foods are swallowed whole with minimal chewing. Plus, chewing of high-carbohydrate foods produces a starchy film that can adhere um, to teeth, creating a rich environment for dental-damaging bacteria. Now, uh, another myth is, uh, do not mix or change cat foods. In the wild, uh, your feline predator will hunt uh, for a range of entries, from mice to bugs. So why do we presume that switching foods is detrimental? In reality, variety may prevent over-supplementation, nutritional imbalances, and the development of food sensitivities. Uh, slow introductions of variety of foods will encourage better digestion and a healthy immune system. That's basically the key to avoid all kinds of gastrointestinal problems is introducing gradually the new food. Now, the following myth is the favorite argument of the anti-raw food people. Myth number four is that raw foods have the highest risk of bacterial contamination. And the simple fact is that as a predator, your cat evolved with a digestive tract that is short, acidic, and hostile to bacteria, designed to process and eliminate food quickly, um, not allowing much time for bacteria to multiply. While caution should be taken with cats with weakened immune systems, uh, precautions in place by leading manufacturers of raw uh, diet pet foods offer safety and peace of mind. Now, the last myth is that food must be left out so your cat won't go hungry. Now, leaving food out is for our convenience mainly. Unless there is a specific health issue, your cat should eat on a schedule of 2-3 meals a day to help with complete and proper digestion. A couple of snacks uh, aren't out of the question, but remember that a few pieces uh, is enough, not an entire bowl. Dry foods are sprayed uh, with uh, flavorings to addict your cat. If you will uh, choose to leave a dry food, a bowl full of dry food for your cat, just in case. The more your cat eats, the more it wants, uh, and basically it prevents uh, from your cat to eat other foods. It, it gets addicted to the junk food. And again, just remember how felines behave in nature. They don't have a constant access to a bowl full of goodies, that's for sure. So this is it for today. I hope that this uh, segment was educational for you. And have a nice day. Goodbye. All right. Thank you, Zoya. That was really uh, good information for everybody. And I think... Uh, Mainly, something about leaving the food out was was one that I, I didn't know. Um, I usually will do that and, uh, mm-hmm. and try to leave a, a full bowl if I'm not around, but it sounds like that's not entirely the case. And if I left a bowl of food out for my cat, you would eat it all. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, sorry, I had a problem with my mic there for a second. 
We, uh, <laughs> let's let's go to our our recipe, Erica. Do you want to enlighten us on how to make lamb tagine? Yes. So uh, when discussing our possible recipes, uh, we decided to have something that we made for dinner the other night, <laughs> which is always great. So um, just a little background on what tagine is. Um, it's a Moroccan dish, and a tagine is actually a type of North African cookware made from clay or ceramic, and it consists of two parts, one round, wide, shallow cooking base and a conical top. But the word tagine also refers to a stew-like dish, which is prepared in this clay cookware. So if you travel to Morocco, you'll see this clay cookware where tagine is made. You can uh, make tagine with other types of meats, uh, I found I enjoyed lamb the most. Um, and so this recipe, you could Google it if you um, were interested. It's There's been a lot of things that have kind of been omitted just for the high carb content and inflammatory spices like paprika. So this is kind of a, a twist on a, on a traditional recipe. But um, I was never a big fan of lamb, and so I wanted to find a way to cook it where I would enjoy it. And so this is kind of my uh, little alternative on uh, tagine. So um, you can buy lamb, preferably without a bone in it. Um, about three pounds is a good amount to serve, um, you know, anywhere from five to ten people. And... Um, what I like to do is cut it up the night before in small chunks and marinate it in the spice mix. And I'm not going to give actual teaspoon, tablespoon measurements because I tend not to cook that way. <laughs> but um, this is just kind of a rough um, recipe that I follow. And again, if our listeners are interested, you can Google it. There's hundreds of different ways to prepare it. But basically the spice mix that um, to use, and again, if you cut, prepare the lamb the night before and marinate it in this spice mix, it's a dry spice mix, it's going to um, have a lot more taste in the lamb when you cook it the next day. It doesn't necessarily need to be prepared that way, but it definitely makes it more tasty. So the spice mix is cinnamon, ground coriander, turmeric, um, ground ginger, and I also use fresh ginger, and I'll go through that in the preparation when I discuss it, um, ground cardamom, ground allspice, black pepper, salt to taste, and then ground cumin. It can also use a, a mixture of Northeast Indian spices called garam masala, and basically it's black and white peppercorns, cloves, cinnamon, nutmeg and mace, cardamom pods, bay leaf, and cumin. So all those kind of spices can be used um, in excess, really, to lamb nice and um, covered. And so when you, when you mix the spices together and then you kind of uh, mix the lamb in there, you, you want to use your hands, that really helps, <laughs> um, to get those spices to kind of cover the lamb chunks. And then you can put it in a Ziploc bag you could even marinate it for two days if you want. Um, and then when you go go to prepare the lamb tagine, um, I use what's called a Dutch oven. It's a large cast iron pot, pot because I don't have an actual tagine cookware. <laughs> um, 
So in the Dutch oven, you want to brown the meat first. So you take the meat out of the Ziploc bag, you put it in the Dutch oven with some bacon fat or some tallow, any sort of oil like that that you like to use. I don't recommend coconut oil just because it will give it a different taste. And you want to uh, brown the meat and the spices first to get it kind of cooked on the outside. And then you remove the meat from the pan and just put it in a bowl on the side. And then you add... um, onions and garlic and then I use fresh ginger you can cut it in little round circles or you can grate it it's really a preference thing and then you um, you know basically saute the spices until they're see-through so the onions are kind of clear and cooked down and then you add the meat back into that mixture and then Um, In a traditional recipe, it would call for something like tomato, uh, stewed tomatoes or tomato sauce. Um, We've supplemented that not using tomatoes but using bone broth instead and really any kind Mm -hmm. of bone broth, chicken broth or beef bone broth. Um, And then you want to put an equal amount of bone broth and some water just so when you get the, the meat in the pan with the bone broth, you want water a little bit above the meat, so it's going to be kind of stewy. You want to cook it for at least an hour to an hour and a half. You can cook it longer. The longer you cook it, the more tender the the lamb is going to get. But I found an hour, hour and a half, the lamb is cooked. And then the longer you cook it, the more stewy it turns. You can also add um, sweet potatoes if you'd like. Some people put carrots. And um, and then, again, you continue cooking. I think the sweet potatoes, uh, about an extra half an hour, you can always parboil the sweet potatoes before if you're running low on time. And then that's basically how you serve it. After um, about an hour and a half, you'll notice it really thickens up. Uh, there's a lot of fat. It will most likely be yellow from the turmeric, which is very good because it's anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And then... That's basically what you have. You have your lamb tagine, and um, it's great as a leftover, too, because, again, the spices start to really soak into the meat, and it's extremely filling. Yes, it is. It's delicious, and it does taste Mm. better the next day. I was looking for some the next day, but I guess it was all eaten up. (laughs) (laughs) So any well, questions awesome. on that? I know I, I apologize for not having the exact measurements, but as Tiffany and I were saying, you know, uh, sometimes when when we're looking for recipes, you can, again, look on Google and just get an idea. But um, the spice mix is really kind of the base of the dish, and the more spice, the better, mm-hmm. I find. Mm-hmm. That sounds really awesome. It's definitely something I'm going to have to try. It's mm-hmm. good. You're good. <laughs> and very filling. All right. Yes. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, thanks very much uh, for that. That's an awesome recipe. Um, I guess that's our uh, that's our show for today. Um, so we'd just like to say thank you to everybody for participating. Uh, we had a pretty active chat today, so that was cool. People in the chat room. <laughs> And I'd uh, like to encourage you to check out the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network. Um, there was no Truth Perspective last week, but I believe there is going to be tomorrow, correct? 
Um, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, and then uh, at, that's at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, tomorrow, and then at 2 p.m. Eastern also on Sunday behind the headlines. Um, so be sure to tune into those on Blog Talk Radio on the SOT Radio Network. And we will be back uh, next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So thanks again, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.